Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. You're listening to episode 124 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the mysterious deaths at the National Hotel in Washington, D.C. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1857, America had a newly elected president, James Buchanan. Before the inauguration, he came down to Washington, D.C., where he stayed at the city's largest hotel, which was known as the National Hotel. But something strange happened to him, and he became violently ill. So did other people at the hotel, and some of them, including high government officials, died. Many people, including the president's own physician, thought it was poison, and rumors ran wild. Was someone trying to poison the new president and his allies? Was a sinister conspiracy behind the event? Was it the work of a serial killer? Or could it have been a mysterious, unknown disease? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So folks, I do want to let you know that at the end of this episode, in our Mysterious Feedback segment, we'll be covering the feedback from our recent episodes on Ingo Swan's remote viewing of alien bases on the moon. Yeah, so stick around for that. We got some really interesting feedback, including from the estate of Ingo Swan. Very interesting. So, Jimmy, on this topic today, uh, what do we have to say up front before we begin? I've recently been digging into 19th century mysteries, including the actual secret societies and conspiracies of real ones from this period. So we'll be doing a series of episodes on those. We'll be looking at groups like the Knights of the Golden Circle, the Abraham Lincoln kidnapping and assassination conspiracy, the Jesse James gang and others. Today's mystery takes place near the beginning of all that, and it will help set the stage for what comes later by giving you an overview of the different ideas and groups and players who were active in America at the time. It's also a fascinating subject in its own right. It involves murder, assassination, conspiracy, politics, science, and detective work. But it also involves some topics like 19th century slavery and racism that are harder to discuss. We should not shy away from subjects like that because we need to be honest about the past. And as they say, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. We need to be willing to take a fact-based, honest look at our history, especially if we want to achieve healing today. So just like many countries have had truth and reconciliation movements, we need to be willing to admit to some painful truths in the cause of reconciliation so we won't be shying away from those. All right, let's uh, start by talking about President James Buchanan. Who was he? 
He was born in 1791, just eight years after the Revolutionary War ended, and he was three years old when the events of the Wizard Clip, which we talked about in episode 115, began to happen. He was born in a log cabin in Cove Gap, Pennsylvania. His father was an immigrant from Ireland of Ulster Scots background, and despite being an immigrant who started as a farmer, he was upwardly mobile and became the wealthiest man in Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. That allowed him to pay for his son's education. James attended college and was nearly expelled for bad behavior, but he ultimately graduated with honors. He then became apprenticed to a lawyer, and in 1812, when he was just 21 years old, he was admitted to the Pennsylvania Bar, and he prospered. By the time he was 30 years old, he was making $11,000 a year, which today would be over $200,000. During the War of 1812, Buchanan served as an enlisted man in the Pennsylvania militia. Like a lot of early American politicians, he was also a Freemason and the head of his local Masonic Lodge, and he got his start in politics by being elected to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives as a member of the Federalist Party. Now, I would guess that most people haven't heard of that party, uh, at least since high school history. What was the Federalist Party? America's political system is structured in a way that it tends to generate two major political parties resulting in the two-party system, but these haven't always been the current Democratic and Republican parties. There have been three major periods in American party politics, each of which had two different rival parties. In the first period, when Buchanan got his start, the two major parties were the Federalist Party and the Democratic-Republican Party. The Federalists were the first political party to be organized, and they were initially led by Alexander Hamilton. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. They believed in a strong federal government, which is where they get their name, although the strong government they were in favor of was still vastly weaker than the one we have today. Opposing them were the Democratic Republicans, who were initially led by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. You simply must meet Thomas. The Democratic Republicans placed more emphasis on the power of states compared to that of the federal government. This was a major issue at the time because there was a question about how much power the states and the federal government should have. Initially, America was a collection of 13 independent states, meaning little independent nations, each of which was fully sovereign. They banded together to form a kind of loose union defined by the Articles of Confederation, but this proved ineffective. A constitutional convention was thus called, which drafted the current U.S. Constitution that gave the federal government more authority. However, many people were still afraid that the federal government would overreach and become a tyranny, denying the rights of the people in the states. And so, and so the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, were also drafted as a check on the power of the federal government. Over time, those who feared federal power would be proved right. Whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, the federal government grabbed more and more power, and the states have a far more restrictive role today. Still, they do have some power, which is why in the COVID-19 pandemic, President Trump couldn't simply issue nationwide lockdown orders, as that was a matter for the state governors. So how did the first party system with the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans break down? 
Uh, that was already happening by the time Buchanan got into politics. After 1800, the Federalists were having trouble winning elections outside of the Northeast, so they were becoming more of a regional party. They also made a disastrous decision by not supporting the War of 1812, which was a post-Revolutionary War rematch between the United States and the United Kingdom. With the Federalists diminishing in influence and the, the first party system falling apart, it led to an era of low partisanship known as the era of good feelings when people weren't so partisan. Oh, man, I'd love to see that again. <laughs> it, it lasted a whole eight years from 1816 <laughs> to 1824, but it broke down and led to the second party system in which the two major parties were the Whigs and the Democrats. The Whigs favored Congress having more authority in the federal government. By contrast, the Democrats favored the president and his executive branch having more authority. So it's like, which part of the federal government do you want to have the power? Buchanan was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1820, and he became a supporter of the popular politician Andrew Jackson, who was a Democrat. And Buchanan himself played a key role in founding the Democratic Party. After Jackson won the presidency in 1828, he appointed Buchanan as the ambassador to Russia. And after he got back home, Buchanan was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1834. He stayed there until 1845 when President James K. Polk appointed him as the U.S. Secretary of State. And in 1843, and President Franklin Pierce appointed him ambassador to the United Kingdom, something that was really important for his political career and helped him become president. Why was the appointment as UK ambassador so important? Because it got him out of the country at a crucial time. Originally, under British law, slavery was legal in all 13 colonies. In fact, in Thomas Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration of Independence, that was one of the charges made against King George III. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This passage was ultimately removed in order to get all the signers on board. It's also ironic that Jefferson himself was a slave owner, though at least the fact he wanted to include this passage in the Declaration of Independence shows that he recognized there was a problem with the institution. But originally, slavery was legal in all 13 of the states due to the holdover from British law. Now, before we go further, I also want to make a point about racism and its relationship to slavery in the United States. Just because someone was anti-slavery didn't mean that they weren't also racist. Most people at the time harbored views that to one degree or another would be considered racist today. Also, most people at the time would have been happy to defend slavery if it was in their economic interest to do so. We thus need to be careful in creating simplistic good guy versus bad guy caricatures of people in this era. Sin is something that affects everybody, no matter who you are, which is why we all need God's mercy. In any event, 
during and shortly after the Revolutionary War, about half of the states outlawed slavery. This happened especially in the North because of its colder climate, which did not allow the large-scale growing of crops that let you run profitable plantations. So not enough people in the North owned slaves to stop their emancipation. Even in the South, most people did not own slaves and worked their family farms themselves. But rich people, who were always the ones with the most political influence, did own slaves, and they wanted to keep them. Also, with the new, more powerful federal government, they were afraid that the government would someday pass a law emancipating slaves throughout the entire country. And that could happen, for example, if enough states joined the union that were anti-slavery because they could vote an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that outlawed the practice. And there were lots of new states joining or getting ready to join the Union. That made the issue of whether slavery was legal in these states a crucial question. Pro-slavery factions wanted to see more slave states added, and anti-slavery factions wanted to see more free states added. To keep the peace and the country together, a series of compromises were made over the years to keep the number of slave and free states roughly equal, so neither could outvote the other. One of the compromises was the 1820 Missouri Compromise, which allowed the free state of Maine into the Union at the same time as the slave state of Missouri to keep the numbers balanced. Incidentally, parallel concerns are part of what keeps regions like Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico from becoming states today. Don't expect new states to be added to the Union if it's foreseen that doing so would upset the party balance by giving more power to one party or the other. But in 1854, the Missouri Compromise was effectively undone by a piece of legislation known as the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The issue of slave versus free states getting into the Union was extremely tense, and by the 1850s, members of Congress were literally coming to blows over the issue, assisted by the fact that they were sloshed when in chambers. As Kerry Walters explains in his book, Outbreak in Washington, D.C., Men who were elected to the House and the Senate not uncommonly came to legislative sessions either drunk or well on their way to being so. It didn't help that both chambers periodically set out refreshment tables loaded with rum and whiskey. The loosening effects of alcohol, coupled with the growing sectional fury over slavery, led to more than one physical altercation between senators or congressmen. In the angry decade leading up to the Civil War, it wasn't uncommon for them to bring pistols and knives to chambers. The furious debate in 1850 over the extension of slavery into the federally held territories west of the Mississippi River culminated in a confrontation in which Senators Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri and Henry Foote of Mississippi nearly killed each other. After a long and increasingly heated exchange of words, a furious Benton leaped out of his seat and made for Foote, who promptly pulled a loaded and cocked pistol from his jacket and pointed it at his colleague. Benton, red-faced with rage, screamed, Let the assassin fire! A pistol has been brought here to assassinate me! Fortunately, fellow senators held back Benton while others snatched the pistol from Foote's hands, and no blood was shed in the Senate on that heated day. But four years later, 
During the congressional wrangle over the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the incendiary piece of legislation that reawakened the debate over slavery in the territories, legislators engaged in fisticuff scuffles on the floor during debate. And two years after that, in 1856, South Carolina Congressman Preston Brooks, a staunch defender of slavery and states' rights, strode over to the Senate chamber and nearly beat to death Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, an unspoken critic of the South. Given the troubled climate of the day, it was a foolish man, as one congressman noted, who refused to carry at least a knife to the Capitol. The violence also wasn't confined to the Capitol building. As a result of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the people of Kansas could vote on whether or not they wanted to be a slave state. And so both pro-slavery and anti-slavery people started flooding into the state, leading to a violent situation that historians refer to as bleeding Kansas. Walters explains... The Kansas-Nebraska Act eventually passed, and President Franklin Pierce signed it into law. But it was a disaster for both the nation and the president's political future. Almost immediately, pro-slavers and free soilers began flooding into the Kansas Territory, each hoping to outvote the other on the issue of slavery. Predictably, both sides elected their own governors and state legislators. Pierce chose to recognize the pro-slavery territorial government even though the blatant voter fraudulency with which it had been established clearly delegitimatized it. Before long, the two factions each organized quasi-militias, often little more than bands of thugs and robbers, which began skirmishing with one another, especially on the Missouri-Kansas border. By the summer of 1856, bleeding Kansas was embroiled in a small-scale civil war. Opponents and proponents of slavery from all over the nation rallied behind one side or the other by shipping firearms, money, and mercenaries to Kansas. Early that same year, a coalition of disaffected Whigs, Northern Democrats, Free Soilers, and other opponents of the spread of slavery coalesced to form a new political party, the Republicans, whose primary purpose was to overturn the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Called Black Republicans by their critics, who accused them of wanting to amalgamate the black and white races, The members of this new party were united in their insistence that slavery had to be contained within the borders of the traditional slave states. It soon became clear that the Republicans would front a candidate in the upcoming presidential race. And that's how we got the Republican Party. And so the current party system, where the Democrats and the Republicans dominate, came to be. Thus, James Buchanan's political career spans all three eras, from the first party system to the third and current party system. For the 1856 presidential election, the Republicans nominated the governor of the Arizona Territory, a former senator from California named John C. Fremont. He was handsome, charismatic, and had a reputation as a famous explorer. To oppose him, the Democrats would need their own challenger. But who would it be? One obvious choice was the current president, Franklin Pierce, but he presided over the Kansas-Nebraska Act debacle and signed it into law. Another obvious choice was the popular Illinois senator, Stephen Douglas, but he was the author of the disastrous Kansas-Nebraska Act. And that's why it was so important that James Buchanan had been appointed ambassador to the U.K., 
he had been out of the country and thus wasn't tainted by the Kansas-Nebraska disaster. He wasn't as popular as the other two candidates, and he didn't have a lot of enthusiastic supporters, but he was a pretty mild-mannered guy who had a decent reputation. In fact, one of his nicknames was Old Public Functionary, which suggests how inoffensive he struck people as being, oh, he's just, you know, that's Old Public Functionary for you. So like Claudius being pulled from behind the curtains, he ended up being the candidate for the highest office in the land. And he won. He got 174 votes in the Electoral College. This compared to only 114 votes that went to John C. Fremont and eight votes that were garnered by the former president, Millard Fillmore, who was then running as a third party candidate for the anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, know-nothing American party. So having won the election, Buchanan began making preparations for being inaugurated on March 4th, 1857. And in late January, he came down from his home in Wheatland, Pennsylvania to Washington, D.C. and booked himself a suite in the city's largest hotel known as the National Hotel, which leads to the next phase of our story. Let's talk about the National Hotel itself. What was it and when was it built? It was first built in 1816, and over the years, it had changed owners and been remodeled and expanded several times. At this point, Washington, D.C. was not what it is now. The original capital of the U.S. was Philadelphia, but since this was a northern city, the capital was moved to a more central place on the border between Maryland and Virginia. George Washington himself was allowed to pick the site, and he picked a place on the north bank of the Potomac River. This meant that the city had to be built from scratch, from the ground up, unlike famous European capitals like London or Paris that had grown up over centuries. So the American authorities got a famous French-American military engineer named Pierre L'Enfant to design the new city. He delivered bold, beautiful plans, but by 1857, the city was only partly finished. To give you a sense of what it was like, here's what Kerry Walters has to say. In the first place, huge open areas, fields, marshes, bogs, and meadows filled the landscape. Anthony Trollope hadn't been exaggerating by much when he insinuated that strollers through the city needed to wear a good pair of waterproof boots. Empty lots were frequently on either side of private homes and public buildings, and the farm animals that had annoyed two decades earlier still roamed. Mosquitoes swarmed by the millions from the marshes and bogs, and the excrement from all the domestic animals wandering the streets and fields both stank to high heaven and attracted armies of flies that tormented residents and visitors alike. In the second place, the handful of public buildings that were the city's pride were mostly only half finished by the time Buchanan took office. The Capitol building was a massive scaffolding on his inauguration day and had been ever since Congress agreed in 1849 to allocate funds to replace its dome and add enormous wings to either side of it. The Patent Office was still being built. The Treasury Department's massive columns hadn't yet been put in place. The General Post Office was being rebuilt, and the Washington Monument, situated on the same axis as the Executive Mansion, remained incomplete and unworked on a casualty of congressional indifference, political squabbling, and a lapse in publicly subscribed funds. Its unfinished spire was not only an embarrassment, 
What, after all, did it say about a nation that allowed work on a monument to its founder to stall? But it was also an eyesore, having become a favorite site for graffiti and vandalism. One of the few landmark buildings other than the President's House that actually was completed was the castle, finished in 1855 and housing the Smithsonian Institution. So the President's House, which was also called the Executive Mansion and today is known as the White House, existed in some form, but many other public buildings didn't, and the city had only one paved street, resulting in a muddy mess whenever it rained or when the snow melted. The one street that was paved was Pennsylvania Avenue, which is home to both the White House and the Capitol Building. The National Hotel was at the corner of Pennsylvania Avenue and 6th Street Northwest, putting it about halfway between the White House and the Capitol, a few blocks from each, which is a good place to put a hotel if you want to cater to all the visiting politicians and bigwigs who are in town. It isn't there anymore, though. It ultimately went out of business in part because of what happens in today's story, and it was demolished in 1942. Until recently, the site was home to a museum known as the Museum, but it closed on December 31st, 2019, so just under a year ago, and the site is now owned by Johns Hopkins University, which is redeveloping it. Back in 1857, though, the National Hotel was still there, and President-elect James Buchanan checked in on January 27th. And what happened when he checked in? He met with various people, though some of the details are unclear. Kerry Walters explains. What seems pretty definite is that Buchanan and his traveling companions took at least one meal at the National Hotel. Jonathan Foltz, the physician who happened to have been a guest at Wheatland when the president-elect decided to go to Washington, accompanied him there. Foltz recalled that the party of nine, weary from their journey, ate at the National on the evening of their arrival. They all retired around 10 p.m. Two hours later, Foltz awoke so violently ill that his first thought was, Why, I've been poisoned! Taking no chances, Foltz immediately reached in his doctor's bag for an emetic and... Quote, by vigorous measures, as his biographer delicately puts it, managed to empty the contents of his stomach. He had scarcely finished this unpleasant task when a hotel servant began pounding on his door to tell him that Buchanan was sick and in need of the doctor's services. Foltz rushed to the president-elect's room to find him very ill indeed, suffering in the same way the doctor had earlier, and it wasn't long before all but two of Buchanan's traveling companions required Foltz's ministrations as well. He was up the rest of the night running from room to room, helping the stricken guests purge themselves as best they could. The next day, Buchanan and his unlucky companions were too sick to leave their beds. In trying to piece together the cause of their illness, Foltz eventually concluded that it was the soup they had taken at supper the night before. The two men in the company who didn't sicken hadn't eaten any of it, and Foltz, who was the least ill of those stricken, had taken but little. The symptoms they presented with were not pleasant, and as usual, we'll be keeping things clinical and not going into the grosser details. In brief, they suffered from pronounced vomiting and diarrhea, as well as extreme bloating due to gas, dehydration, thirst, and exhaustion. These are symptoms that you'd expect when the body is trying to get rid of something toxic. 
as we mentioned in episode 59 on mind control parasites, one of the body's responses to ingesting harmful things is to try to get rid of them by making you nauseous so that you'll vomit and quickly get them out of your upper gastrointestinal tract. Also, by giving you diarrhea, your body will try to quickly get them out of your lower gastrointestinal tract. Both of these actions mean that you lose a lot of water, resulting in dehydration and thirst. They can also take up a lot of energy and deprive you of nutrients and vitamins, resulting in exhaustion. But our bodies find different things toxic. Some of them are parasites, like harmful viruses, bacteria, and organisms, which get into you because they want to complete their life cycle. Others, though, are poisons that don't have a life cycle, including a bunch of the atomic elements we now know to exist. Atoms were not yet proved to exist in 1857. In fact, there's a whole section on the periodic table known as Poisoner's Corridor because of the toxicity of the elements in that part of the table. They didn't know nearly as much about parasites and poisons as we do today, but Dr. Foltz's first thought upon waking and feeling the symptoms was, I've been poisoned. Depending on what you've been poisoned with, if you can get rid of enough of it quickly, you may recover quickly. And that seemed to happen for Buchanan and his traveling companions. They spent January 28th in bed, but then... By January 29th, the worst seemed over, and the men had recovered enough to leave their beds. As they gathered that morning for toast and cups of weak tea, they joked about their malady and, thinking they were cured, forgot about it. Buchanan spent the rest of his time in Washington trying to mend political fences and making the social rounds. He was apparently well enough on the evening of Saturday, January 31st, to attend a soiree at the executive mansion, that is the White House, and one the following night hosted by Mrs. Stephen Douglas. He departed for home on February 3rd in weather so bad that one Pennsylvania newspaper reported that the president-elect footed it, or walked, the last 10 miles to Wheatland, a feat that suggests how much he had recovered from his indisposition. Once back home, Buchanan returned to the business of sorting out his cabinet, putting up all the while with a continuous stream of visitors. Over the next three weeks, he managed to select candidates for all but two cabinet positions. One of them went to Lewis Cass. Buchanan liked him no better than he ever had, but he realized that political expediency required the senator's appointment. And then, on February 25th, Buchanan published a surprising note in several newspapers announcing that he would receive no more visitors until after the inauguration. The doors of Wheatland were closed. Buchanan's aides tried to spin this as the president-elect getting some quiet time to make final preparations for his upcoming inauguration on March 4th, which was just seven days away. But the truth was far different. On February 24th, Dr. Foltz was urgently summoned to Buchanan's residence, being told that the president had suffered a severe relapse and was presenting the same symptoms he had a month earlier at the National Hotel. And Buchanan wasn't the only one. Others from the party started suffering relapses. The symptoms would unpredictably come back months or even years later. That was still in the future, though, and for the moment, Buchanan had to soldier on and get ready for the inauguration. 
On March 2nd, he traveled to Washington by train and was so sick that he skipped a celebratory banquet the mayor of Baltimore wanted to throw for him when he changed trains. Then, when he got to Washington, he checked into the National Hotel again. Dr. Foltz had told him not to, but he did anyway because he was friends with the owner and didn't want to slight him. But he did take precautions and didn't eat any meals in the hotel. He only consumed a cracker during lunchtime. The inauguration went off okay on March 4th, though Buchanan barely got through it, being given anti-diarrheal medications and small doses of brandy by Dr. Foltz. He left the inaugural ball early and left the hundreds of guests to their merriment. Some of them continued dancing until four in the morning. The National Hotel was filled to the brim with guests who had come for the inauguration, including the rich, the famous, and the powerful, and bunches of them suddenly got sick. It was only when dozens of the guests fell ill with the same symptoms that had floored Buchanan and his traveling companions at the end of January that the newspapers began to take notice. Word soon got out that Buchanan had been stricken earlier and the natural assumption made by both reporters and the general public was that his second stay at the hotel had made him ill again. In all likelihood, however, he was suffering a relapse rather than a fresh exposure to the cause of the malady. Within a week of the inauguration, Washington was abuzz with alarming stories about the strange illness afflicting National Hotel guests. By mid-month, newspapers were giving their readers regular reports on the affair, and by the month's end, Victims of the National Hotel Disease, as it was now most commonly called to the dismay of the hotel owners, were writing letters to newspapers describing their ordeals. Because of the poor to non-existent record-keeping and contact tracing, the Centers for Disease Control hadn't been invented yet, it's hard to say exactly how many people were stricken. Some estimate that it was around a 1,000, but that's likely too high. It was definitely in the hundreds, though. Dr. Foltz said that over 400 people got sick, and here's the really scary part, 10% of them died. Whatever this was, it killed dozens of people, maybe 40 or more. Among those who died were four people who were companions of President Buchanan at the hotel. The first to go was Elliot Eskridge Lane, who was only 33 years old. He was President Buchanan's nephew. And he died that month on March 31st, 1857. The second to die was the newly elected Pennsylvania representative John Gallagher Montgomery. So he was from Buchanan's home state and also a Democrat. He only got to serve in Congress very briefly as he passed away the next month on April 24th, 1857. Also killed was Mississippi representative John A. Quitman. He also was a Democrat and a personal friend of Buchanan. He managed to live until the next year, passing away on July 17, 1858. And there was Pennsylvania Representative David Fullerton Robison. He was a member of an opposition party called the Opposition Party. The definite article, you might say. But he was from Buchanan's home state. He managed to hang on another year, dying on June 24th, 1859. All right, let's review the situation thus far. There are two major outbreaks of whatever this was. The first was when Buchanan came to the hotel and he and his companions all got sick. 
His doctor's first thought was that he'd been poisoned. Then when Buchanan comes back for the inauguration, he gets sick again, along with hundreds of other people, with dozens dead. And among the dead are four of his companions, including his nephew, his friend from Mississippi, and two representatives from his own state. What did people think of all this? They thought it was a massive assassination plot, that someone was trying to kill Buchanan and perhaps his allies, and they didn't care how many people got taken down with him. They thought that the assassin or the assassins were poisoning everybody. This perception was reinforced by the fact that the malady was centered on the hotel. It was not being caught by people in Washington generally, as you'd expect from a disease. It was just this building. Did they have any idea what the poison was? Yes, they suspected it was an inorganic mineral poison, and specifically they thought it was element 33, or arsenic. Arsenic has been used as a poison since ancient times when Roman assassins would smear it on figs. It causes the same basic symptoms that Buchanan and all the other hotel guests reported. According to the Book of Poisons, arsenic is extremely toxic, and it only takes between seven drops and a teaspoon to kill a human. It also kills rats, and in the 19th century, all you had to do was go down to the drugstore or hardware store and buy some arsenic to get rid of the pesky rodents in your house, or any pesky human beings in your house. So purchasing arsenic didn't raise suspicions. That's why arsenic was one of the most popular poisons for murderers. And because it's an elemental metalloid, it never decays or loses its potencies. So it's a stable element. You know, arsenic is forever. In fact, unusual traces of arsenic have been found in Napoleon Bonaparte's hair, which potentially could support his belief that he was being poisoned towards the end of his life. Mm. I bet that's a future episode of Mysterious World. <laughs> uh, we'll have to see. <laughs> <laughs> so did they find evidence of arsenic use in this case? On April 1st, the Baltimore Sun reported on an autopsy that was done on a man who had died in Pennsylvania. There apparently weren't very many autopsies done. They were much looser about such things than we are today. So this autopsy was significant. The paper doesn't say who the decedent was, but the account was published the day after Buchanan's nephew, Elliot Lane, died in Pennsylvania. And so there's a very good chance that it was him, and the paper may have discreetly omitted the name to avoid saying that the president's nephew had just been autopsied. According to the paper... A post-mortem examination of the remains of a gentleman who died in Pennsylvania from disease contracted at the National Hotel, shows a deposit of arsenic in the stomach. A patient here now suffers an enlargement of the abdomen from some cause and with marked symptoms of being poisoned. So, at least according to this press account, there was arsenic in the dead man's stomach, which would mean a poisoner, or a conspiracy of poisoners, was trying to kill the president and his associates. Mm. So before we get to our theories about what could have happened at the National Hotel, I do want to stop and take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Clayton C., Robert J., Anthony C., Michael F., and John M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest 
You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about what happened at the National Hotel? The number of people who got sick and died is way beyond random chance for what you'd expect for this group of hotel guests. Therefore, something got into these people's bodies that killed them. The question is, what was it? The first theory that suggested itself to people at the time was that it was poison, specifically a mineralogical poison that was likely arsenic. If it was poison, we need to ask if the poisoning was accidental or deliberate. And if it was deliberate, who was doing it? A theory that doesn't seem to have occurred to people at the time was that it was the work of a random serial killer. But there were a number of groups that were proposed, including Southerners, Northerners, African Americans, and our old friends, the Jesuits, as possible poisoners. However, we also need to consider another theory that suggested itself to people at the time, which is that it wasn't poison, but a natural disease. It was argued that this disease was caused by miasmatic vapors. So we need to consider that and what modern science would have to say. Finally, we need to look at a few things from the faith perspective. All right, let's start with the reason perspective then. What can we say about these events from the reason perspective? Let's start with who would have a motive to kill the president and his associates? Could it have been just a random mass murderer or serial killer? And why wouldn't people at the time think of that possibility? I can't say nobody thought of it, but I haven't found it in the reading I've done on the case. Uh, one reason that they would be less likely to think of it back then is that the concept of serial killer really wasn't a thing yet. There were murderers who killed multiple people, and that's always been the case, but mass murderers and serial murderers really didn't become famous for some time. For example, the most famous serial killer of the 19th century, Jack the Ripper, on whom we'll do a future episode, didn't commit his crimes until 1888, which was 31 years after this. A bit less famous was the American serial killer who was active in the 1890s, Dr. H. H. Holmes. He constructed an apartment building in Chicago that was specially designed to serve as his murder castle. And I can't help wondering if he was in some way influenced by the events at the National Hotel 40 years earlier, since he was also killing uh, multiple people in a hotel-like structure. And we'll do an episode on him at some point, too. But the idea of serial killers as we understand them wasn't in the popular mind at the time. In fact, the term serial homicide apparently wasn't used till around 1974 when it was popularized by FBI agent Robert Ressler, who did early key work in studying and profiling serial killers. And the term serial killer itself apparently wasn't introduced until 1985 when it was coined by LAPD detective Pierce Brooks. So people at the time wouldn't have been as inclined as we might to think of a serial killer being responsible for something like this. But in hindsight, does the evidence fit that possibility? 
I don't think so. It's hypothetically possible that someone just wanted to kill all these people, either for no motive or for no political motive. But people were certainly justified at the time in seeing a political motive between the two waves of sickness that seemed to focus on President Buchanan and his associates. On the other hand, as we'll see in a bit, that connection isn't as clear as it seemed at the time. You mentioned four groups were accused of being the assassins, Southerners, Northerners, African-Americans, and Jesuits. So why would Southerners want to do in Buchanan? There was a popular theory at the time that held that there was a conspiracy of wealthy Southerners who wanted to take over all the branches of the U.S. government and make slavery legal throughout the U.S. At the time, this supposed conspiracy was called the slave power. And there were some passionate defenders of slavery who were known as fire eaters. But most Southerners dismissed the slave power conspiracy theory. Nevertheless, for people in the North, and since Buchanan was from the North, there was a sense that one of ours was the target. And so if one of ours is the target, it's natural to suspect one of them was the enemy responsible. Many in the North thus assumed that the slave power conspiracy was responsible for the assassination attempt. One of the claims advocates of this view made was that the plot involved poisoned tea, which Buchanan was known to like. Also, tea was more popular in the North, whereas coffee was more popular in the South. So you could kill all the tea-drinking Northerners while sparing the coffee-drinking Southerners. That would then pave the way for Buchanan's vice president, who is from Kentucky, to assume the presidency. How likely is this theory? Not very. First, the victims of the malady did not fall neatly along north-south lines. In fact, one of the people who died was Buchanan's friend John A. Quitman, who was a leading fire eater from Mississippi. Also, pro-slavery people wouldn't have a reason to kill Buchanan since he was a Southern sympathizer or what at the time was known as a doe face. I mean, after all, he was best buds with a Mississippi fire eater and he pursued Southern friendly policies throughout his career and his administration as president. So why would you kill him and dozens of other people as well as making hundreds of others sick and risk an investigation that could expose your slave power conspiracy just to get a guy from the border state of Kentucky into office. You know, that wouldn't make any sense. Huge risk for minimal benefit. Okay, so what about Northerners then? Would they have a motive to kill the Southern-friendly Buchanan? Not all Northerners, obviously. Buchanan won lots of votes in the North, and he was one of their own. But when Northern writers started proposing the slave power conspiracy, Southern writers started proposing a counter theory that it was a conspiracy of radical Northern abolitionists who did it. Abolitionists were people who wanted to abolish slavery everywhere in the United States, although that didn't mean they held modern ideas about African-Americans. Some, including Abraham Lincoln, held views of African-Americans that would be deemed really offensive today, but he didn't want to see him enslaved. On the other hand, other abolitionists had much more modern ideas about equality. In any event, it was argued that some group of abolitionists were so radicalized that they wanted to commit mass murder in order to get rid of Buchanan. 
it was claimed that Franklin Pierce's attorney general had received a letter from a pharmacist in Philadelphia who said that a person in Washington had ordered 30 pounds of arsenic, which was then used to commit the poisoning. It also was claimed that Buchanan's attorney general wanted to go public about the plot, but that the new president scotched the proposal for the sake of the nation. How well does this theory fare? Not very well. First, the alleged letter may not have existed at all. Also, it was supposed to be from a pharmacist in Philadelphia about an order of arsenic down in Washington. So if the letter existed at all, it may have simply been based on rumor. Second, the papers allegedly documenting the plot were later allegedly seized by the government and so cannot be examined. It's another case of the missing evidence. And third, it would make absolutely no sense for abolitionists to kill the northerner James Buchanan because that would mean his southern slave-owning vice president John Breckinridge would assume the highest office. That would have been the direct opposite of the goals you'd expect abolitionists to have. So once again, with a conspiracy poisoning hundreds and killing dozens, you'd be taking a terrible risk of having your conspiracy exposed and your movement to free the slaves irreparably harmed for no reason. This just doesn't make any sense. What about the idea that African-Americans did it? This one is really stupid. The idea is supposedly that African-American staff members at the National Hotel, either free blacks or slaves, knew that Buchanan was friendly to Southerners and killed him on that basis, or tried to. But there were Southern friendly people who stayed at the hotel all the time. You know, there were Southerners, even fire eaters who frequently stayed there. So why hadn't they been killed? And why would African-Americans want the slave-owning vice president to become president? And then there's this. The National Hotel didn't have any African-American staff members at the time, so there wouldn't have been anyone to commit the crime. It's a stupid theory. Okay. So what about those crafty, conniving Jesuits? Another stupid theory. And it's interesting that this theory wasn't proposed in the 19th century, given how much anti-Catholicism there was at the time. In fact, the anti-Catholic Know-Nothing Party had won the state of Maryland and its eight electoral votes just a few months earlier. But the idea that the Jesuits were responsible doesn't seem to have come up until 1922, when a book called The Suppressed Truth About the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln was published by a man named Burke McCarty. It's still in print, and we'll have a link to it in case you'd like to read some really lurid anti-Catholic conspiracy stuff. Catholics, you know, hate freedom and democracy, of course. And according to McCarty, President Buchanan was Southern friendly, but not Southern friendly enough. When he privately told some people that he needed to be president of both the North and the South, well, that was just too much. So the Jesuits were dispatched to kill him. And the Jesuits are so murder happy that they decided to poison hundreds of people in hopes of killing the target which they then failed to do. Bad, bad Jesuit assassins. So you don't find this theory credible? No, it's not supported by the evidence and it's implausible on its face. Furthermore, the know-nothings were finally on the wane 
in American politics. The last thing crafty Jesuits would want to do is poison hundreds of people and risk an investigation that would harm not only them, but all the native and immigrant Catholics in the U.S. who would bear the brunt of the fierce persecution that would result. In fact, know-nothings had physically attacked Catholics, as in the Election Day Bloody Monday riot in Louisville, Kentucky in 1855, and some were killed in the violence. So if it wasn't a serial killer or the slave power or abolitionists or African-Americans or Jesuits, it seems we've kind of run out of suspects. We have, and that's a sign we should take another look at the poisoning theory and ask whether it was really attempted murder or assassination at all. Maybe it was accidental. How could that have happened? As we mentioned, arsenic was used as rat poison, and it so happened that the National Hotel had used it a few years earlier in an effort to get rid of a rat problem they had. Further, when the building was inspected as part of the investigation of the 1857 incident, it was found that several dead rats were floating in the building's water tank. You (laughs) Don't ask how the sausage gets made or what's in the water tank. So the theory went, maybe the rats ate the arsenic and their resulting thirst drove them to the water tank. And then the arsenic in the water then poisoned the guests. Is that a likely possibility? Not at all. It takes way less arsenic to kill a rat than a human being. So if we bought this theory, only a tiny amount of arsenic would have made it into the water tank from the handful of rats that were found there. That wouldn't be enough to kill anybody, much less poison hundreds of people. And it wouldn't explain why this didn't happen way earlier when the rat poison was first put out. It certainly wouldn't explain why it happened in two waves that coincided with President Buchanan's visits. Could the poisoning have been accidental in another way? One proposal from the time was that it originated in the kitchen. The staff were using copper cookware coated with tin, and an inspector found that the tin coating was imperfect, so it was proposed that arsenic mixed with the copper got into the food that was served to the guests and poisoned them. But remember, it takes between seven drops and a teaspoon of arsenic to kill a human, and there's no way, even if the copper cookware had arsenic in the alloy, that enough of the arsenic would get into your food to kill anybody, much less poison hundreds. Also, some of the people who got sick said they hadn't eaten or drunk anything in the hotel during their stay and took their meals elsewhere. All right, this arsenic theory is sounding less plausible, but what about that story in the Philadelphia newspaper that claimed arsenic was found in the stomach of one of the victims? Even today, our partisan sensationalistic press prints all kinds of false rumors, especially in time of calamity. Well, the 19th century's partisan sensationalistic press did exactly the same thing. We don't have medical records to confirm the claim, and this is likely a false rumor. Also, there's a really big problem with the arsenic theory that we haven't mentioned. If you get a big dose of arsenic, big enough to kill you or make you sick you'll tend to get sick once. It might injure your health, even in a permanent way if it hurts your internal organs like your kidneys or liver. But what it doesn't do is cause you to have waves of symptoms where you feel, where you get sick and then feel fine for weeks or months and then get sick again with the same symptoms. 
That's not how arsenic works, and it's a really good sign that this wasn't arsenic, nor would it have been any other mineralogical poison because the others work the same way. I mean, as soon as I heard that the symptoms came in waves, I said to myself, that doesn't sound like a poison. It sounds like a disease, and not just any disease, since viruses tend to cause one illness and then go away. It sounds like a bacterium or some more advanced creature that can stay in your system and cause recurrent problems. So that points us to the idea that this was a disease, which was, in fact, what the medical establishment at the time ended up concluding. They said it was caused by miasmatic vapors. What does that mean? It refers to the dominant theory about disease in 19th century medicine. The current view which attributes many diseases to germs like viruses or bacteria, wasn't yet in vogue. There have been advocates of the germ theory of disease for a long time. One of my favorite historical quotations comes from the Roman scholar Marcus Terentius Varro, who lived in the first century BC and said, Precautions must also be taken in the neighborhood of swamps, because there are bred certain minute creatures which cannot be seen by the eyes, which float in the air and enter the body through the mouth and nose and there cause serious diseases. I love that. Minute creatures which cannot be seen by the eyes. How right he was. But his view was not yet popular in 1857. Ironically, just a few years earlier in 1854 over in England, Dr. John Snow had made maps that traced a cholera outbreak in London to a single pump on Broad Street and used it to argue for the germ theory of disease. Then, just a few years later in the 1860s over in France, Dr. Louis Pasteur got further support for the germ theory, and by the 1880s, the germ theory was playing to sold-out audiences, and it's still the dominant theory today. Of course, the results of science are always provisional, and who knows what we'll discover in the future. Jim, we've got to let me go in there. Don't leave him in the hands of 20th century medicine. Admiral, may I suggest that Dr. McCoy is correct? Back in the 1850s, one view that still had potency was the heroic depletion theory, or heroic medicine. This view held that disease was caused by an imbalance in the four bodily humors, yellow bile, black bile, blood, and phlegm. The idea was that you had too much of one humor and not enough of another. So what you needed to do was remove the one that you had too much of to bring the humors back into balance. That led to practices like bloodletting and purging, which were common in what was called the Age of Heroic Medicine between 1780 and 1850. But by 1850, heroic medicine was playing for smaller audiences, and the theory that was really rocking the box office was miasmatic theory. It was supported by bunches of people, including the famous 19th century nurse Florence Nightingale. Miasmas is the Greek word for defilement or corruption, and so the idea was that disease is spread through defiled or corrupted air, which was called bad air or night air. Any air that smelled bad was thought to contain miasma and thus able to spread disease, and the miasma itself was thought to come from rotting matter. Now, this is not the same as germ theory, where it's specific germs 
that cause disease, whether those germs are spread through air or water or touch or blood, regardless of whether they cause a bad odor or not. The miasma theory was partially correct in that it held disease could be spread through the air and that bad odors may be connected with disease, but it was wrong to think that it was miasma rather than specific germs that cause disease, and it mistakenly focused primarily on air as the mode of transmission. It also ignored the fact that sick people become germ factories, and so disease spreads from person to person and not just from vapors coming from rotting matter. Were there reasons why a miasmatic disease was suspected at the National Hotel? Yeah, parts of it smelled awful. And in fact, lots of Washington, D.C. did, as we covered earlier. But certain parts of the hotel were really bad due to a problem with the hotel's sewer lines. One of the key supports for the poison theory was that the malady struck twice, and both times it happened only in this one hotel and only during President Buchanan's two visits. That's not the way we would expect a disease to behave. That sounds more like a poison. If the disease theory of these events is true, how could we explain that? There are several possible ways which doctors proposed at the time. Kerry Walters writes, Winter in Washington during 1856-57 had been particularly brutal, and this led some to speculate that above-ground sewage drains leading from establishments and homes had frozen, backed up, and pushed toxic fumes indoors, which normally would have dispersed harmlessly into the open air. It was noted that the worst of the outbreaks, both the one in late January that afflicted Buchanan and the one that recurred in the week before his inauguration, struck during two horrible cold snaps. The combination of frozen drains and closed windows, this account concluded, led to a poisonous atmosphere in the hotel, especially in those rooms, such as Buchanan's, situated directly above the drains. Others suggested a quite different cause for the sewage backup. In early January, the cold weather had given way briefly to a warm period of rain and snowmelt, which caused the Potomac River to rise. Again, in March, the cold was relieved by a warm spell on Inauguration Day, leading once again to a sudden melt-off of ice and snow. This led Isaac O. Barnes, himself a victim of the first outbreak, to suggest that the noxious vapor that had invaded the National was driven back upon and into the cellar by the sudden rise of the Potomac, into which the sewer should empty itself. To his mind, the poisoning was due to warm, not cold weather. There was even a third explanation for the backup. Scientific American reported at the end of March that the odor in the National that afflicted the guests with nausea and diarrhea was caused by the tapping of sewers at 6th and Pennsylvania Avenues. So there were three possibilities for what might have caused the outbreaks that coincided with Buchanan's visits. Cold snaps, warm snaps, and work being done on the sewers. And those three explanations are not mutually exclusive. It could have been a combination of them. Further confirmation that this was an outbreak of miasmatic disease seemed to arrive when it was discovered that the illnesses weren't just confined to the two Buchanan visits. By May, reports emerged that there had been an earlier outbreak in mid-December, and so it wasn't something specifically targeting Buchanan. The miasmatic disease theory seemed confirmed, and so that's what 19th century doctors eventually concluded. But it couldn't have been, since the miasma theory was eventually disproved. So what would modern medical science say? 
It's difficult to assess, and as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been serious contemporary research done into the question. You'll find some modern sources that say it was a cholera outbreak, and the symptoms were consistent with those of cholera. Others will more generally say that it was dysentery, but dysentery can be caused by a number of different things. In researching this episode, I reached out to a couple of medical doctors who listen to the show, so I'd like to thank Drs. Stephanie Whittle and Thomas Carroll for their assistance. The impression I got from what they had to say is that there are a number of known pathogens that could cause symptoms like these, but none are the clear answer. In particular, the known pathogens don't tend to cause relapses of the symptoms months or years later. And that seems to be the weirdest thing about this disease. Hypothetically, it's possible that some of the victims had or acquired underlying medical conditions that made them prone to relapses or that produced what seemed to be relapses, even though it was really something different. It's also possible that some of them may have been exposed to other pathogens that produced similar effects, so they thought they were having a relapse even though they weren't. And it's possible that this was a one-off mutation that really did produce relapses, but that either died out or mutated further so that it hasn't been discovered. And, you know, that's possible. Sometimes when a new mutation occurs, it'll be really deadly, and but then it'll lose its punch as it mutates and becomes more common. So maybe this was potent enough to cause relapses, but then later lost that. So absent more definitive evidence, I don't know that we can say what it was other than that the reported symptoms were like those of cholera or dysentery but we can't know for sure. If any doctors in the audience want to do further research on this, I'd love to hear what you discover. Be sure to read Carrie Walter's book, Outbreak in Washington, D.C., for a fuller account of all the symptoms, because, as I said, we're avoiding some of the grosser details in this episode. Also, if anybody finds a scientific paper that has been written on this question, I'd love to know about it. So, Jimmy, what can we say about the deaths at the National Hotel from the faith's perspective? Well, if it had been due to assassination or mass murder, that would have been bad. Both assassination and mass murder are gravely sinful. Also, we should address at least briefly the issues of race and slavery that were involved in this story. Racism is flat out wrong. God doesn't care what your skin color is any more than he cares what your hair color or your eye color is. All of us are God's children. Concerning slavery... This was something that existed in the ancient world, and the early Christians, unfortunately, weren't in a position to make it magically vanish any more than we're in a position today to make abortion magically vanish. However, I will note that in 1 Timothy 1.10, St. Paul lists man-stealers or slave traders as among the people who violate God's law alongside murderers and perjurers indicating this is a sin. We should thank God that we live in an age when it has been abolished, and we should do all we can to promote the healing of the wounds that it's left on society. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the deaths at the National Hotel? The deaths at the National Hotel were a genuine mystery at the time. They seemed, at first, to be the result of mass arsenic poisoning aimed at President Buchanan and his associates. 
However, on further investigation, the disease theory is far more likely. The 19th century explanation of miasma is wrong, but precisely what the disease was remains a mystery today. So, Jimmy, what further resources do we have for the listener on this topic? We'll have a link to Carrie Walter's book, Outbreak in Washington, D.C., also the Book of Poisons, Burke McCarty's book, The Suppressed Truth About the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln, for all of your really lurid anti-Catholic conspiracy needs. Spoilers, Uh, Catholics did it. (laughs) (laughs) Also, we'll have links to pages on James Buchanan, on National Hotel Disease, Manifest Destiny, Know Nothings, Bloody Monday, Germ Theory, the 1854 Broad Street Cholera Outbreak, Humoral Medicine, Heroic Medicine, Miasma Theory, and our old friend, Cholera. That's the the rose gallery of diseases. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's move on to our mysterious feedback this week. Uh, this week, we are, our feedback is from our episodes on Ingo Swan's book, Penetration. Yeah. And I was really pleased after those episodes aired. In fact, after the first one aired, you know, we put up notifications on social media, including Facebook and Twitter and so forth. And the estate of Ingo Swan liked and retweeted us. Nice. For for both episodes. And uh, I exchanged some messages. And uh, here's what with the estate of Ingo Swan. And here's what they had to say. Thank you for keeping Ingo alive. It was a wonderful podcast. Thank you. As Ingo's original sketches in the book, as well as his original Jupiter artwork, are both held in his archives at the University of West Georgia, would it be possible to include a link? His archives have tons of other materials as well, including all of his remote viewing training work with the Stargate remote viewers. Since UWG has a parapsychology program and a whole host of paranormal materials in its special collections, they're quite a resource. Uh, IngoSwan.com website also has some good information. We have put up his real story of remote viewing in case anyone would like to read that. Ingo always said RV was not his, but from the many. If you've not read it, I would recommend it. And we'll have links to both the Ingo Swan archive at the University of West Georgia and also the Ingo Swan website. Excellent. Kelly Brown writes on Facebook, This was a great series of episodes. The entire story is fascinating. I tend to believe the theory that the mysterious woman was a foreign spy and they were keeping an eye on him. Mr. Axelrod was probably just keeping things close to the chest. I don't believe there are secret alien bases on the moon, but I admit I kind of wish they were. It would make the moon much more interesting. It would make the moon much more interesting and potentially more dangerous. (laughs) Sarah Kranz writes on Facebook, Everyone knows the Jadoon are on the moon. <laughs> oh, there's a whole platoon of Jadoon on the moon. <laughs> Doctor Who reference. Devin Thompson writes on Facebook, fascinating episode, one of my favorites already. The part of Swan's story I find most problematic is the journey north to witness a UFO. It seems out of character, considering how little information Axelrod was willing to share with Swan up to this point. And it goes against how Swan normally went about his remote viewing work, assuming the point of the trip was to get Swan's impressions of the craft. Why not keep him in D.C. or wherever and give him coordinates again? He could give his impressions without having them tainted by his expectations of what a UFO or alien craft should be like. 
true. He could have remote viewed the UFO potentially, but it, there also could be a benefit to being up close to it. And that might give you different impressions. Also, one of the things about remote viewing is if you have these transient phenomena that show up from time to time, but you don't know exactly when it's going to happen, you also wouldn't know exactly when to do the remote viewing or exactly when to tell the remote viewer to look. So it could make sense to bring him there so he knows when to start trying to get the psychic impressions. Right. Ruth Wentz on Facebook writes, I did have one question during this. If they were so sure of Swan's remote viewing ability, why did they go to so much effort to hide the details of the underground location where they brought him? Shouldn't he have been able to figure it out well enough? Well, potentially. Now, at this point, Ingo's abilities had not yet hit the 65% that he was aiming for. And he told Mr. Axelrod up front, I am, you know, this is un this is very unreliable. So if they had let him go there without the security procedures, he would just know exactly where they were. But given the shakiness of this ability, if it even exists, they would have a much higher chance of him not knowing where the facility was if they blindfolded him and things like that. Hypothetically, he might have been able to, you know, like maybe while he's laying in bed there, remote view the location from above and figure out where it would be on a map. Maybe he could do that, although that's not as easy as it's as it sounds, because unlike a map, if you were looking down at a terrain, it's not all neatly labeled for you with with pins from Google to tell you what this location is. Mm -hmm. So if you're out in some underground facility in the woods, who knows? But also he might simply not think to do that or he might try it and get erroneous data. So one way or another, they were keeping their location more secure by putting him through the secret agent procedures than if they hadn't. And you know what they say, secret agents got a secret agent. <laughs> it's a hard habit to break. Clever Name on YouTube writes, for the first time, I actually got chills listening to this. Expect contact freaked me out. Yeah, it is kind of freaky. I want to add, though, mm -hmm. if if you haven't got if you haven't listened to the Skinwalker Ranch episode, I got chills listening to that one, too. So <laughs> go back and listen to that one. But uh, yes, this was there was some freaky parts of this one. Midwest Nagifa on YouTube writes, uh, and I, I'm probably missing a joke but, or something with these <laughs> pronunciations. Some of these I've noticed I've gone back and but I'm just editorializing here, gone back and read some of these YouTube names in the past. And like, mm -hmm. oh, that's supposed to be pronounced like Nanagaga, not Nana Gaga. But sorry. Uh, but anyway, Midwest Nagifa on YouTube writes, I've heard of this incident before on YouTube back before I was 10 years old. But back then I didn't know how to work the Internet. And so I hadn't remembered where I'd heard it. I did remember the part where he was spotted on the moon a little differently, that some voice from the aliens spoke into his head, telling him to go away. This is one of my favorite topics, and I'll definitely be supporting the podcast once I'm old enough to do so. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it, Midwest. And I've heard the same thing. I, I believe I've heard it on Coast to Coast AM. I've heard different people recounting this story, and since they're not in go themselves, the details may vary a little bit, but I, I've heard different versions of the, like, he, he was warned off the moon rather than 
Mr. Axelrod told him to withdraw after he was spotted. So that's that I've, I've heard that same thing, but that's one reason I wanted to present this from Ingo's viewpoint with a lot of his own words so that people wouldn't have this kind of secondhand telling of it. So you like, this is what Ingo actually said happened. Right. That what you said, he said came right from his book. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you all for that excellent feedback. We really do appreciate receiving that. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, speaking of the moon, one of the things that we mentioned recently in our Young Earth creation discussion was the giant impact theory of the moon's origin, that Earth, billions of years ago, was struck by a large Mars-sized body known as Theia that kind of smashed up our planet a little bit, and then the Earth and the moon congealed out of that. There are other theories of the moon's origin, but that one has been the most common one recently. And we have a link to a story about a new study that that boosts that theory. So you want to check that out. It has to do now. Remember, back in our episode on alien implants, we talked about how you can tell what world or solar system a thing is from based on which isotopes it has. Well, that's what this study involves, uh, the, co- comparing the isotopes in, that are found in rocks on the moon compared to those that are found on Earth. Looks like they're similar but different, suggesting the impact origin. Also, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago all the stories about life on Venus. Well, life on Mars is also a possibility. And so we'll have a link to a story about Mars having an underground biosphere. So uh, the idea is it's at a low enough level for there to be sufficient temperature and pressure that would make it more livable for Martian life. Finally, Nikola Tesla was from Venus. Since we're talking about Venusian mm. life, <laughs> at least according to one woman quoted in a file that the FBI has now declassified. <laughs> back in the back in the 1950s, as part of the UFO contactee movement, there was a woman who was talking to the Space Brothers and they indicated that Nikola Nikola Tesla was really originally from Venus. He was brought to Earth as a baby and given to Ma and Pa Kent, I mean, Mr. and Mrs. Tesla, (laughs) in a remote mountainous location in Yugoslavia. Okay. Well, that would explain all that technology. Yeah. Yeah. That's what she said. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, that's it from us. Uh, We want to hear your theories about the mysterious deaths from the National Hotel. And you can let us know what you think by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page or sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world or use the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Jimmy, what uh, what's our next episode going to be about? So next Friday is a fifth Friday, so we'll be doing a weird question show for fifth Friday. And then the week after that, we're going to be looking at curses. Mm. Uh, can you put a curse on somebody? Have are What about different historical curses? How does cursing work? And we're not talking about just saying bad words. <laughs> That's right. That seems appropriate for around Halloween. So interesting. All right. So be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. And your purchases there help support the, uh, the show and the network. So we appreciate that. 
You'll find links to all of Jimmy's resources from today's discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>